Are you interested in joining a community of policy influencers working toward positive change? Consider Seton Hall University's results-driven executive graduate programs in international affairs. You can customize your studies through research in regional areas and specializations, including conflict management, global health security, and more. As a graduate candidate, you can leverage a collaborative and dynamic professional platform that includes one-on-one faculty mentorship, career workshops, international seminars, and discussions with global leaders on campus, at the UN headquarters in New York, and in Washington, D.C. The program is flexible. Study full-time or part-time, online or at the New Jersey campus just 14 miles from New York City. To learn more or sign up for a webinar, click the link in our episode description. Hi, I'm Casey Candela. And I am Damilola Banjo. This is Unscripted, a podcast taking you inside the United Nations and beyond the scripted debate to the people at the art of it all, the diplomats. On today's episode, the United States assumes the rotating presidency of the UN Security Council in May. We discuss the U.S.'s two signature events and how Russia's invasion of Ukraine is affecting global hunger, refugee crises, and diplomacy at the U.N. Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February has helped to bring the world to the brink of a food crisis. The Food and Agriculture Organization says that, as of March, the cost of food item is at its highest level since the Food Cost Index was launched in 1990. The World Food Program, or WFP, says there is a hunger catastrophe and the conflict is responsible for 60% of the global population of starving people. As council president, the United States will hold an open debate on the link between conflict and food security on May 19th. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is expected to preside at the meeting. And the day before, he'll chair a global food security call to action ministerial at the U.N. Here's U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield at a press conference on May 3rd. On our first signature event, on food security, many of you know this issue is personal for me. I've seen starvation up close with my own eyes. That famine and acute malnutrition are largely caused by war, sometimes intentionally, is really unacceptable. This is even more urgent today because of Russia's unconscionable invasion of Ukraine. Ukraine used to be a breadbasket for the developing world. But since Russia has spurned the largest refugee crisis in Europe since World War II, blocked crucial ports and destroyed civilian infrastructure and grain silos, desperate hunger situations in Africa and the Middle East are getting even more dire. This meeting of the Security Council will fall during a week of action that the United States will be launching to address food insecurity across the globe. 
important work is already underway on this topic in other international fora, including the G7. Our intent is to expand the circle, including both donors and countries most affected by the spike in food insecurity. The UN is the right venue for such a meeting, especially given the role of UN agencies in meeting humanitarian needs and implementation of solutions. We cannot look away from the millions who are worried about where they'll find their next meal or how they'll feed their families. The WFP says conflict is partly why the number of the world's hungriest people has doubled from 135 million to 276 million in three years. But people displaced by hunger, conflict, and climate change are not always treated the same way. The U.S. and Britain have launched special settlement programs for Ukrainians fleeing the war in their country. But they've been more hesitant to help people from other places displaced for other reasons. Tom Weiss is a leading American academic on the U.N., he is a presidential professor of political science and director emeritus of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the CUNY Graduate Center. He says the West has double standards when dealing with migration. The welcoming of refugees who come from the Ukraine and who are white certainly stands in stark contrast with the lack of enthusiasm for refugees from Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, and many African countries, or in the U.S. case for the southern border with refugees from, well, Central America mainly, but also economic migrants from Mexico. So this double standard is certainly not the only double standard we've seen recently, but it is seemingly an embarrassment of major proportions. Because as we know, most refugees actually go to contiguous countries, and the burden is really placed on them. So I think one should look upon the generosity of Central Europeans who are on the borders, whether that's Poland, Hungary, Slovakia, Moldova, look upon that with a great amount of praise for the generosity. I mean, 5 million people in a matter of a couple of months. But the double standards applied at the southern border of the United States or in Britain seem to me are going to be a real embarrassment as well as an unsettling precedent. The UN says more than 11 million Ukrainians have fled their homes since the war started about two months ago. About 3.5 million of them are seeking refuge in neighboring countries and other parts of the globe. A further 6.5 million are dispersed across Ukraine. One reason Russia was suspended from the UN Human Rights Council by the General Assembly in April was that it has created a refugee crisis not seen since World War II. Ambassador Thomas Greenfield says the Security Council has been instrumental in isolating Russia from its action and using the General Assembly to pass resolutions against Moscow. I think while it has been a challenge, the Security Council 
has been extraordinarily successful. We have been successful in isolating Russia in the Security Council, and that's a significant success. We have been successful in unifying the voices condemning Russia. In the General Assembly, it came about because there was so much support for it in the Security Council. And getting 141 votes to support uh, that effort was a significant uh, success for all of us. We were successful in the General Assembly in bringing a resolution forward in providing support for Ukraine for humanitarian assistance. And we have been successful in unifying the UN in suspending Russia from the Human Rights Council. Russia is isolated in the Security Council. And every time we have a discussion in the Security Council as it relates to Russia, they are on the defensive. And we will continue to keep them on the defensive until they end their brutal attack on the Ukrainian people. The most effective of these resolutions so far has been suspending Russia from the 47-member Human Rights Council. But Tom Weiss says that countries with poor human rights shouldn't be in the Geneva-based body to begin with. This basic precedent in how to consider membership in the Human Rights Council, which originally was supposed to include your performance on human rights indicators as part of your membership, which seems to have gone away over the years since the the first meeting in 2006. I'd like to see this reinstituted. That is, if you're going to be a member of the council, your human rights record shouldn't be amongst the worst on the planet. While the General Assembly has passed numerous resolutions condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine, they've been far from being unanimous. Beijing has remained an ally to Moscow and many African countries that have benefited from Chinese and Russian investment have been wary of making waves. When the motion to suspend Russia from the Human Rights Council was held, 23 African countries voted to abstain. Ambassador Thomas Greenfield says the U.S. is continued to use diplomacy to encourage African countries not to fear the impact of speaking against Russia's invasion. Tom Weiss understands the fears of sub-Saharan Africa on the Russia problem, but he says the 23 countries that voted to abstain and the other 11 that failed to show up found a diplomatic way to support the motion without antagonizing Russia or China. It seems to me there are two possible interpretations. And I think the first is somewhat facetious that that is Africans like the notion of colonization and recolonization of Russia taking over the Ukraine. I hope that's not the case. But what it seems to me is that there is a residue of somehow thinking that the Soviet Union helped during national liberation struggles. I find that hard to believe still holds more sway than a war in violation of the UN Charter. I think what actually reflects more is the national interest or the perceived national interest of lots of countries that want Russian arms, want Russian investment or a combination of Russian and Chinese investment and arms. 
so that they see that their own interests are better served by sitting on the fence. I think it's also important, however, to note that the rules of the General Assembly are that an abstention doesn't count in the totals, so that the vote to abstain actually meant, and they knew who was going to vote in favor of it, there were very few countries that were voting against it. So the vote and abstention actually meant that they were supporting the notion of throwing Russia off the Human Rights Council. Another landmark UN reform that was passed in the General Assembly was a resolution led by Liechtenstein in April. The resolution requests that any P5 member or members who veto a draft resolution in the Security Council defend themselves in the General Assembly, where every country has equal power. The U.S. was on board, but Tom Weiss was surprised that France and Britain hesitated before backing the veto initiative at the last minute. He says this resolution will make the Security Council slightly more accountable. The chances of a substantial reform of the Security Council are about the same chances as snow in Nigeria. I see this as actually a modest step in the direction of slightly more accountability. I doubt that Russia is going to have any reticence about defending its position, but it would certainly not like to be forced to do so. It's actually why I'm intrigued by the U.S. support for this Liechtenstein and everybody of another 50 countries proposal, because this would apply, obviously, to the U.S. Uh, use of the veto every time anything related to Palestine comes up. So that in and of itself is an interesting development. I actually would have thought that the French probably would have signed on to this as they've been supporting the idea that there would be no veto in humanitarian emergencies, et cetera. I, I actually thought that the French and the Brits, who are usually on the defensive because they're obviously no longer major powers and they still have a veto, that they sometimes seem more likely to support a measure that would go against their sort of public image. So I've been surprised that the U.S. was so enthusiastically for this and that Paris and, and London seem to be against it. I don't think they pronounce themselves, but they haven't supported it. It's obvious why Beijing and Moscow don't, particularly at this juncture, because they'll be obliged to come and defend a position that in the Russian case is pretty indefensible. So I see this as a step in the right direction and one that, like other informal changes in Security Council procedures, is probably the only way to make the Security Council slightly more accountable because we are not going to see any new permanent members, and we're not going to see any new vetoes. We're not going to see the elimination of vetoes. So that this is another step like holding the meetings in countries in conflict, like ARIA formula rules, et cetera, that mean that the Security Council is not the closed sanctum that it once was. So I'm as keen as one can be about such reforms. We'll be right back. Are you looking for a talk show featuring leading global voices? Do you want to learn more about how international issues directly affect people locally? 
Global Connections Television presents the insights of global influencers at no cost to viewers and programmers. GCTV is independently produced and reaches more than 70 million potential viewers worldwide each week. The show covers everything from human rights to climate change, from peace and security to empowering women and girls. It features guests such as Dr. Jane Goodall, former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights Mary Robinson, and Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary. The show also hosts expert voices from the private sector, academia, and labor and environmental movements. GCTV is available to public television media outlets, universities, and service clubs for distribution. To watch the show or find out more, click the link in our episode description. Now, back to the show. The U.S. second signature event on May 23 will tackle the issue of how disinformation affects global peace and security. This is the first time the Council will take up this topic. In 2018, Facebook faced congressional hearing over how third parties were using its platform to manipulate public opinions and influence election results. Since then, more evidence has emerged that some governments and quasi-government groups are involved in such activities. For example, the Wagner Group is a Russian mercenary militia tied to the Kremlin. In West Africa, it has been accused of using fake social media accounts to create public discourse about the presence of French and the EU forces across northern Mali and the Liptako region, which covers eastern Burkina Faso, southwest Niger, and a small portion of southeast central Mali. Here's Ambassador Thomas Greenfield on our hope for the upcoming debates. With respect to our second signature event, I want to add that peace and security has been completely transformed by digital technology for better or for worse. We know how these tools can be abused to spread disinformation, restrict access to information, and deny human rights. But we also see opportunities to use digital technologies to do tremendous good. Digital tools can help to identify emerging threats. It can protect civilians and civilian infrastructure and reconnect and reunite displaced peoples with their families. They help prosecutors collect evidence to build cases for war crimes, and they connect refugees to host families and employment opportunities. And they help us better prepare peacekeepers to deploy in the field and improve our ability to engage different stakeholders in peace talks. As the world pursues a digital future that is open, secure, interoperable, accessible and reliable, we have to be mindful of both the benefits and the risks of digital technologies. Our signature event on digital technology and international peace and security will contribute to the Council's understanding of the evolving landscape, and it will offer a chance to share national perspectives as well as best practices 
highlight the importance of capacity building and help us all identify ways the UN can continue to adapt its efforts. In addition to the two signature events, Ambassador Thomas Greenfield says the U.S. will be holding three meetings on the state of affairs in Syria. She had planned to visit the region, but her trip has been postponed. Instead, she'll go to Brussels for a pledging conference on the future of Syria. I also want to emphasize the three meetings we will have on Syria this month, the humanitarian situation on the 20th, chemical weapons on the 23rd, and the political situation on the 31st. The dire humanitarian situation facing millions of Syrians remains another significant priority for the United States. Of course, our focus on Syria in May takes on renewed importance as we approach July 10th, when the Security Council must renew and expand the mandate that allows vital food, clean water, vaccines, and medicines to continue flowing into Syria. But perhaps the U.S. biggest challenge in May will not be a global crisis itself, but rather making sure international tensions don't become interpersonal ones between the ambassadors themselves. So far, Ambassador Thomas Greenfield says things have been awkward but not explosive, at least not in public. I will say that the tone within the council has become somewhat muted. I, I, I won't say that uh, there are any, it's, there are no fireworks that are going on that are different from the fireworks that we always have. Uh, we are uh, as strong on our views, whether it's Ukraine or other parts of the world and other council members are equally uh, strong. But I have noticed that we're somewhat muted, uh, particularly uh, when we are outside uh, the council. Uh, I think on, on the social side, all there, there's a sense of discomfort. And uh, I think fortunately in the past few months there have not been any large social engagements that we've been required to participate in where we have to be diplomatic and smile. This episode was co-produced by me, Casey Candela, and Banjo Damilola for Pass Blue, an independent women-led media site covering the United Nations and global affairs. Dulcie Leinbach is our editor, AI Digital created our podcast logo, and our music is by Poddington Bear. A lot happens at the UN beyond what we report in each episode of Unscripted. And Pass Blue is covering the important news from women's rights to human rights. For day-to-day -day coverage, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And to subscribe to our newsletter, go to passblue.com. Past Blue's in-depth and exclusive stories and this podcast are possible with the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the Open Society Foundations, and listeners like you. To show your support, visit Past Blue's website and click Donate. Unscripted is available wherever you find podcasts. If you like today's show, please rate us on iTunes and share it with all your friends.
With the world ravaged by wars, infectious disease, and climate change, we need to ask, what do we want the world to look like in 2030? The New School's Julian J. Studley Graduate Programs in International Affairs will prepare you to use your career to create a more just world order. Based in New York City, these master's degree programs will give you deep insight into global issues such as conflicts, migration, human rights, development, and media, as well as the skills you'll need to work in these areas. The program also offers an international field program, UN summer study, and student team consultancies with intergovernmental and non-governmental organizations. To find out more, click the link in our episode description.